a dragon that terrorized a certain community. He brought fire, death, and terror. The dragon's next target was a young lady from the royal family. As the dragon approaches the woman, a brave knight arrives on the scene and slays the dragon. The knight saves the woman and the town. This scene comes from the book St. George and the Dragon. But we see several scenes like this, don't we? Maybe it's from The Hobbit, Desolation of Smog, or from one of my favorites from the movie Shrek, where Shrek saves Princess Fiona from the dragon. But the point is, is once the dragon is slayed, there is peace in the land. This morning, we're going to be looking at a much better story than those I just mentioned. It's the true story of the world where the serpent is slayed by none other than the one who died and rose again, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Last week, Paul gave a list of greetings to the church. There we saw that Paul not only loves doctrine, he loves people. Christians are people united around the gospel. Now, after that, in our text this morning, Paul gives a sober word. This is once again followed by more greetings. And on top of this, after going to the mountains of election in Romans 9, and justification by faith in Romans 4 through 6, and our need for the gospel in Romans 1 through 3, Paul gives us one more command. He ends the letter with a final command in verse 17. It's a, mad, it's a command to be discerning about matters concerning the gospel. Gospel unity propels mission which means that if you lose the gospel, you lose the mission. So, for the sake of unity, which we saw in the greetings, the saints are to guard the gospel. The relationship between last week's text and ours is then a call to unity around the gospel. But the serpent wants to burn and kill and change the gospel. There's this conflict that we see between the serpent and the saint. But the outcome has already been determined by our hero and our king, by our Savior and our Lord who slayed the serpent so that his victory becomes our victory. This brings us to our big idea this morning. Be discerning even though the conflict between the serpent and the saint has been settled. 
It's a call to be discerning, to continue to be discerning, even though the conflict between the serpent and the saint has been settled. It's my prayer that we continue to be discerning about the gospel together in unity as we declare the gospel to everyone. So let's spend some time looking at the big picture of Paul's argument before we dig into some of the details of the text. That leads us to our first main point. The serpent slayer brings salvation. Here we're going to look at the big picture of the text. Paul weaves together the reality of Genesis 1 through 3 into what he says here in Romans 16, 17 to 20. After the fall in Genesis 3, there's conflict. And by conflict, I mean that after the fall, all of humanity was in conflict with God and with each other. By conflict, I mean that this will continue until the Savior slays the serpent. So let's trace some of these threads from Romans 16 back to Genesis 1 through 3. In Romans 16, 17 through 18, Paul tells the church to take note of and stay away from those who deviate from sound doctrine. Then in verse 19, he tells them to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Finally, in verse 20, he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Verse 20 seems to be coming out of the blue. Right? Paul says to stay away from those who contradict sound doctrine and to grow in their knowledge of what is good in verses 17 through 19. Then all of a sudden, he says that they will crush Satan under their feet. Where's that come from? Well, to answer that, we need to ask what verse 20 alludes to and how it is connected with what comes before it. So verse 20 is clearly alluding to Genesis 3.15, which was read for us this morning. It says, I'll read it again, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So after the fall, God in his grace promises an offspring from the woman who will overthrow the offspring of the serpent. A savior will slay the serpent. But Romans 16.20 isn't out of the blue and alluding to Genesis 3 because Romans 16 verses 17 through 19 is connected to Genesis 1 through 3 as well. There's an echo to Genesis 2, 9 in Romans chapter 16, verse 19. There's a connection between the idea of naive and evil in Genesis 2 and 3 
as there is in Romans 16, verses 18 through 19. There's a relationship between Satan and his representatives in Genesis 3 through 4, as there is in Romans 16, 17 to 20. So Romans 16, verses 17 through 20 then, echoes the reality of Genesis 1 through 3. All of this helps us see this connection. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were to serve as representatives of God, obeying His Word and being on guard against all that contradicted it. This corresponds to Paul's instructions to be on guard against all that contradicts sound doctrine in verse 17. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were naive as to what was evil, and they needed to be wise as to what was good. They weren't to eat from the knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This resembles Paul's words here in Romans 16, 18 through 19, where he exhorts the church to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. In Genesis 3, Satan comes in with crafty speech, seeking to lead God's people away. This parallels those who strive to lead God's people away in Romans 16. In other words, the reality Paul weaves into Romans 16 is one of conflict seen in Genesis 1 through 3. Adam and Eve were to watch and keep the garden as they avoided the knowledge of good and evil. And now so, the church. Then the crafty serpent arrived to deceive people so that they would die, as do false teachers. Yet God promised to slay the serpent and reverse the curse as Jesus did on the tree. Paul draws us into the fabric of reality by echoing Genesis 1 through 3. The reality is that after the fall, there's conflict. There's enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There are those who represent Satan by their sinful, unrepentant character and are so-called Satan's offspring. This path leads to death and God's wrath. Then there are those who represent the Savior, who live as repentant sinners and are so-called God's offspring. This path leads to life and to forgiveness. This is what Jesus gets at in John 8, 44, when he says to the Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand on the tr in the truth because there is no truth in him. The only hope anyone has is God's grace. As Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with them, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our only hope is the Savior who reversed the curse. The only hope the world has is the serpent slayer. If you don't know Jesus, put your faith in him. Trust in him. Turn from your sins and run to Jesus. He will save you. He can set you free from your sin. Jesus took the wrath that we deserve and calls you to himself. His victory becomes our victory. Church, only God's grace secured by the person and work of Jesus gives us the strength to heed his word. God's grace provides the foundation for our obedience in the commands in Romans 16, 17 through 20. So treasure all that God has done and all that God will do as we heed his commands in these verses. All right, now that we've seen the bigger picture that Paul points us to, let's look at some of the details. Let's spend some time examining those who oppose the church, our second main point. Discern the serpent's crafty schemes. Discern the, saint, the serpent's crafty schemes. In verse 17, Paul describes those who embody the serpent's crafty schemes in opposing the church, right? Those who oppose the church cause divisions. They bring dissension. When they enter a room, they bring strife with them. They've heard the gospel and they don't like it. It also says that they create obstacles. You see that there in verse 17? This word obstacles is often used in contexts of people leaving the Christian faith. The idea here is that these people are seeking to lead people into sin and away from Christ. It says that the obstacles created are contrary to the sound doctrine the church has received. And this doctrine is the gospel. Right? The church has committed themselves to the standard teaching, as Romans 6.17 tells us. So those who oppose the church are seeking to lead people away from the orthodox teaching of the gospel. So if the gospel says that people are justified by faith alone, as Romans 4 through 6 show, then these people might say that we're justified by faith and works. To be clear, Paul is describing those who oppose the gospel message and they want other people to oppose that message as well. He's not saying that people can never disagree about certain doctrinal matters. Right? Just because a person brings disagreement doesn't automatically mean that person is a false teacher. We've seen that in Romans 14. 
Rather, as one commentator put it, what Paul rejects are divisions that are not based on or in accord with his gospel. This is where it's important to have the ability to discern the difference between core doctrines and disputable matters. Having this ability is the difference between compromising core Christian truths and needlessly dividing over peripheral issues. So as you think through topics, through doctrine, ask yourself these questions. How might this issue affect other doctrines? How much weight does Scripture place on this issue? What is this issue's relevance to the person of God, to his character? What is this issue's relevance to the essence of the gospel? What has the church throughout history said on this issue? Doing this helps us stand firm on core Christian truth and divide if needed. It also helps us not to divide needlessly over peripheral issues. So Romans 14 teaches the idea that we shouldn't divide over peripheral issues. And Romans 16 says that we do need to divide over gospel issues. Now look at verse 18 with me. It says that those who oppose the church don't serve our Lord Jesus. Rather, they serve their own appetites. And this is similar to what we saw in Romans 1.25, which says that people have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So those who are creating obstacles are worshiping themselves, their own appetites, rather than God. They would rather live for themselves and find their own cravings and follow their own cravings and follow God and his ways. These are the type of people who believe the serpent's lies, thinking that following God's word means that they will be deprived of something good. So they live for their own cravings. But the very thing they think brings freedom is the thing they're enslaved to. As Christians, we can rejoice that Christ has set us free and only Christ. This is humbling. It reminds us that we aren't superior to others because we too were once slaves to our sin. And there's one more thing Paul says about those who cause divisions. Verse 18 says that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They have a silver tongue. They speak like the serpent in Genesis 3, smooth and crafty. These wolves are by not all bad appearances, bad communicators. They string words together well. They communicate in a way that's persuasive. When they talk with you, you think they have your best interest in mind, but they're really in it for themselves. 
I'm reminded of that scene in Star Wars when Palpatine is talking with Anakin. Anakin says, the Jedi use their power for good. To which Palpatine replies, good is a point of view, Anakin. The Seth, the Sith, and the Jedi are similar in almost every way, including their quest for greater power. In this whole scene, Palpatine convinces Anakin that he's on his side. Palpatine is smooth with his words. He was convincing. So those who Paul is talking about are sly with their words too. These wolves, Paul's talking about, deceive the hearts of the naive. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting or simple. So Verse 17 says that there are those who seek to lead people away from the orthodox teachings of the gospel. Verses 18 says that those same people are self-centered rather than Christ-centered as they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And in light of this, Paul exhorts the church to watch out for and avoid those people. They are to avoid them because they don't serve Christ. So Paul not only describes those who oppose the church, he also tells us how the Christian should respond. So we've come to our third point. Flee error and stand on the truth. Flee error and stand on the truth. Paul tells the church to do two things in verse 17, right? First, they're to take note of those who are going against the grain of gospel doctrine. This means that they have to be alert. The Christian is not a walk of passivity. They have been taught the gospel doctrine, and they are to be alert to doctrine that deviates from that standard of teaching. Throughout the letter of Romans, Paul has spelled out the gospel, and it's this gospel that unites Christians. We often hear of talk of unity, yes and amen, like that's what the book of Romans is about. Christians are united around the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. But look what Paul says next at the end of verse 17. You should not only note those who oppose the gospel, right, be alert, be aware of, but you should avoid them. The only unity that counts for something is unity around the gospel. It's truth-based unity. For example, unity around the gospel means that we embrace the truth that Jesus is the only way for salvation. This means that we don't pretend like people who reject that truth will be saved. Rather, for the sake of unity, we aren't united with those who reject the gospel. I like how one writer puts it. Contrary to popular opinion, love and unity in the church do not spring from tolerating teaching that departs from Scripture. Rather, love and unity spring from opposing different doctrines and standing firm in the truth. 
We've also read in Romans that Christians should bless those who persecute you. Christians are people who should tell the gospel to everyone and everywhere. Christians are people who are characterized by sacrificial love. So when it says to avoid them, it doesn't mean we don't tell them the truth. It doesn't mean we avoid engaging the world with the gospel. What Paul says here is that if someone opposes the gospel, you should know who they are and avoid their negative influence. As a corporate body here at Trinity Bible Church, we aren't to let the gospel be corrupted. Flee error. So just as Adam and Eve had to guard and keep the garden from the crafty snake, so Christians guard the church from crafty false teachings as they avoid it. Love and truth are not at odds. The church is committed to the truth and love others when they stand firm on that truth. The church is gracious and charitable and bold and firm. If the gospel, if gospel unity propels mission, then gospel disunity weakens it. Guard the gospel as you avoid the neg negative influence of those who oppose gospel doctrine. Unity means guarding the gospel because without the gospel, there's no unity. This isn't a call to be a theological bulldog. By this, I mean someone who doesn't find joy in the doctrine they claim to protect. And someone who bullies others with the doctrine that they watch. As one commentator says, one may keep away from the harmful influence of a false teacher without hardening one's heart against him. It's a call to be like Paul, who weeps over his kinsmen who don't know Christ in Romans 9. It's a call to love people like we've seen Paul do in the greetings. It's a call to marvel at the riches of God's grace, as Paul did in Romans 11. So we love truth, and we love people. We're as bold as Stephen in Acts 7.51, where he says to the Pharisees, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did, our father, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Bold. Firm. And we're as loving as, and compassionate as Stephen who says to the same group of Pharisees that we just saw him talking to, says this in, in Acts 7.60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Bold and loving, wise and caring, that's the call. Now look at verse 19 with me. Here Paul says that he's full of joy that they are obedient. They haven't been deceived. 
They're following the Lord, and this gives Paul great joy. Yet, this puts a target on their back because their obedience is known to all. This is why Paul tells them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What Paul says is that they need to be, when Paul says they need to be wise as to what is good, he's saying you should have the ability and the skill to discern truth from error. Don't be caught off guard. Grow in your ability to distinguish between good and evil. Be good Bereans and examine the scriptures. Then he says to be innocent as to what is evil. You have been freed from sin and error. Don't go playing with it. Walk in the light and have the ability to discern between good and evil. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were innocent as to what was evil. Don't go experimenting with sin. Don't fall for the trap like Adam and Eve when the serpent approached them. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set you free. You don't have to sin anymore. Be innocent as to what is evil. Sometimes growing up, I would hear, go out there, experiment. What they were getting at is, it's okay to play with sin. Go live a little. Elementary and high school students, it's okay to be innocent to what is evil. You don't have to fit in with what others are doing. True joy is found in Christ and his word. People who play with sin are too easily pleased. Playing with sin is like a mouse going to get cheese from a trap. They only see the cheese and are oblivious to the fact that it will lead to their death. So it is with those who play with sin. They only see the sin and its fleeting pleasures, but ignore the fact that it will lead to their death. You don't need to go mess around with error and false teaching. The call of the Christian is daily repentance. It's remembering that lasting joy is found in Christ alone. Those who are facing temptation, remember this. Be innocent as to what is evil. Paul is calling us to be wise in knowing good, and we get that by studying the word and learning from more mature saints. Let's make it an aim to grow in our ability to become wise as to what is good. So then we have this conflict between the serpent and the saint, but this conflict has been settled. We know the outcome. Look at our final point with me. Be of good courage. For the conflict has been settled. Be courageous. We know the outcome. Verse 20 begins by saying that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice several things here with me. First, peace is achieved as Satan is crushed. The serpent is slayed as Genesis 3.15 says he would be. 
God is faithful to his word. You can count on it. This reminds me of Romans 8, 20 and 21, which says, the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The curse will be reversed and there will be perfect peace on earth. Second, there is a sense in which Satan has been defeated by Christ already, as we just saw, as we saw in Colossians. But the consummation of it awaits the future. Right? We say they will be crushed under your feet. This is a certainty. Perfect peace will come. Be of good courage. Third, it says that the slaying of the serpent will happen soon. This is hopeful. Christ can come at any moment. Friends, let's live like we believe this on a daily basis. I know I don't always do this. I know I need help in this regard. Fourth, it says that God will crush Satan under the feet of the saints. And do we see that? The saints will slay the serpent. So, as we saw, there is a sense in which Christ slayed the serpent, but here, the saints slay that crafty snake. This means that the triumph of Christ is shared with his followers. The victory of Christ becomes the victory of his people. The conflict between the serpent and the saints has been settled. Fifth, this gives the saints a backbone of still. Those who are opposing the church and are opposing the church are connected with Satan's activity to bulldoze the church. But this won't happen because this opposition will be short-lived. The defeat of Satan means the defeat of all that opposes the church. This gives the saints a sense of courage. They could be full of courage because they know the outcome has already been determined. Sixth, the rest of verse 20 says that all of this will happen only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in guarding the gospel. He is our only hope for being united. He is our only hope in the Great Commission. So may the Lord Jesus be with you, Trinity Bible Church, as we heed his word. Now look with me how else the conflict has been settled in verse 21. He ends with these greetings here. But here, even here, we see this idea that the conflict has been settled. As we've, as, as we've seen, the fall resulted in conflict with each other. So here's one thing I think Paul is getting at with these greetings again. All those mentioned in verse 21, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, are Paul's kinsmen. All those folks are Jews. And they're on board with what Paul has been saying. Last week, we saw a bunch of Greeks and Jews who make up the church. People from different ethnicities and backgrounds and experiences. And they come together in 
unity around the gospel. So there was this conflict between people, and now there's unity. The gospel restores harmony between people as it unites people around the gospel. The conflict has been settled by Christ. And here's the thing. All of those people were at one time opposed to Christ. Think of Paul killing the Christians. But Jesus saved them. He brought them into his big family. So there's hope for those people who are opposing the church. They can be grafted into the family as well. And so there's hope for those who oppose the church today. Let's love them as we share the gospel in a charitable and bold way because we know the conflict has been settled. We see the same idea in verse 23, where you have Gaius, Erastus, and Cordus. They greet the church. Gaius is, is a host. He either hosts those Christians who are traveling, these missionary Christians who are stopping by, or perhaps he hosts a church in his house. In any case, he is hospitable. He is hosting Paul. Christians are hospitable people and show their love for one another. The conflict has been settled. And we see that God's truth is being trumpeted in verse 21 as well, or verse 22. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And Paul is writing that message to the Romans. We see that in verse 22. Tertius wrote this letter and he greets the church. Tertius is this guy who wrote down what Paul dictated to him. And he's like, hey guys, I want to say hi too. I'm here. The conflict has been settled not by Christian violence or any such thing. The conflict is settled by the work and person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. It's settled as the message of the gospel goes into all of the world and does its work. Praise God for the preservation of the word of the gospel. Let's continue to pray and work towards this end. Would it go out to the ends of all the earth? May the grace of our God be with us. So as we close, remember to be discerning even though the conflict between the serpent and the saint has been settled. Continue to cherish the gospel in unity, holding firm to the truth as we declare the gospel to everyone and everywhere, all to the praise of our triune God. Let's pray. God, we are so encouraged by the fact that you always hold true to your word. Come, Lord Jesus. We know that you will, and the conflict has been settled. And as we wait for your return, Lord, give us courage. Help us be loving and caring. Help us be firm and bold to the gospel. Keep this church, Lord, pure. Help us hold true to to the gospel. Help us be hospitable. Help us, Lord, Heed your word. Only you can help us. In Christ's name, amen.